Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. People thought that was a crazy idea when that was published in 2020, Vince. You know, I was just thinking maybe we're going to have to change that. It's been a great ride language. I don't know. People maybe not. Some, but there is a threshold, a, isn't there? There was meetings that could not finish when I came out with that stagflation call in, in April 20. I, I've been in, personally insulted by clients. So, No doubt. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, we also you know heard what I'm that we were the... out of our minds oh, with that call. And uh, well, for years. I love I love the the graphic with the whirlwind, the hurricane with the money flowing around. I think that's uh, as powerful as it gets. That's right. Powerful symbolism right there. Yeah. Um, before we get started, um, please remember that this is for entertainment and educational purposes only. And you should not consider what we discussed today on today's podcast as advice. Um, with that said, Vincent. Welcome to the show. I have been really excited to have you on, as I was mentioning before um, we went live, because we've been following your thesis very closely for the last 18 months or so, and it has increasingly sort of converged with the perspective and observations that, that we've been making and that we've been preparing for for many years. So, um, you know, I think your framework for how to think about this problem in a sort of data-driven way. Um, so what has inflation looked like historically? How persistent has it been under different conditions? What to expect and what, what are the impacts on markets? I think that's a really timely and powerful framework for us to discuss today. So welcome. 
Yes. Uh, Thank you. Vince, Vince, do tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you know, we've heard it here before, but, you know, just before we begin the whole discussion and thesis and lots to dig into, why don't you give us a little bit about you? Sure. So, <clears throat> so as a, I was born and raised in a small town in, in France. Uh, initially, I think I was probably meant to do what, what you do when you have good grades in school in France, which is work for the government. Um, and then I, I don't know, I just had a stroke of luck. I got a scholarship to go study in the U.S. for, for grad school. Uh, that was shortly before eight, so uh, I guess 06 or something like that. I, at the time, I think if you could, the, the test to work at an investment research firm or hedge fund was, can you open Excel? Uh, which I could barely do. Uh, so I started at a small um, research firm, uh, actually out of Sausalito, uh, not far from, from San Francisco. Um, worked through the whole, you know, 2008, 2011, sovereign debt crisis. Um, that was really my, I would say, my formative experience. And I, I think it really scars. I mean, and the first thing you see is, you know, markets dropping by, you know, in the case of international markets, sometimes more than 70%. Um, that's that's really uh, pretty deep. Um, and after that, <clears throat> I uh, started Ned Davis Research uh, European product. So I was uh, out of uh, Florida for uh, five years. Um, and then uh, about six, seven years ago, uh, my current employer, StoneX, uh, is a very uh, large broker dealer with big presence in Latin America. I uh, started noticing that um, clients were really demanding kind of original third-party research, didn't trust the banks, uh, and said, well, let, let's try to bring that in-house. Let's let's start our own global macro product. Uh, so that, that's what I've been doing for, for the past uh, six years. And I mean, it's been a terrific ride, really. Uh, it's, it's a fun job. Like, you know, markets are fantastic. I mean, it's always something new to learn. There's always some new idea to investigate and, and to have the freedom to be able to do that and and the ability to meet with, with people, I mean, such as yourselves or some other people on FinTwit, it's I'm just very grateful for, for doing what I do. So yeah. you had a calling into public service in France. You went to the U.S., were corrupted, driven into the private sector, for-profit. The, the public service in France was deprived of your expertise and value add, and, and here you are today in service to global hedge funds. I feel like that's like a 180 degree well. turn. Well, so you're making two assumptions here. <laughs> One, that the, the French public service is a model of virtue and uh, a paragon of honesty. And uh, and they are these people for sure. But, uh, you know, on average, I would say people are the same everywhere. And, and really, uh, as far as the, uh, the clients we serve, it's mostly actually Latin American pension funds and uh, farmers, producers. Uh, so it's kind of fun. Like uh, Stonex kind of a boots on the ground. Uh, you know, our largest office in, in Brazil, for example, and, you know, it's kind of, I don't know, I feel like it's more real when you see people who are, you know, trying to, you know, make a farm run and deal with this crazy volatility and, and giving, sending them product to help them hedge up this. Yeah, I enjoyed that uh, StoneX conference, a lot of my Latin American brethren, and you just get to see a completely different side of financial markets, right, what they actually care about the actual commodity hedgers and produce like you know hedging actual product and what they're really focused on and there's some asset managers as well but what they the way they think about inflation is very different than what a, an american 
advisor thinks about inflation for obvious reasons. A lot of Argentines that we met there um, thinking like, we're like, do Americans not even think that it's possible to see any inflation? Is that for real? And I'm like, that's a real thing. That's well, the Argentines are on the other end of the spectrum, right? They don't know what it's like to have benign inflation. <laughs> have benign they, inflation. They, they've had <laughs> continuous high inflation for how many decades now? Yeah, it's been pretty bad. Now, I, just before we continue, nobody's complimented my fancy drink today. What are you, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing a, a gin tonic with a, um, a passion fruit uh, sprinkling. It's like my new thing. I'm going to do only fancy drinks and, and riffs going forward. And I encourage the rest of you to do it. I think, you know, we've been, we, we started there and now we're drinking La Croix. That's the best be we can do. To your benefit, not to ask, Rod, but since you had to bring it up. No, no, no. No, this is, <laughs> no, I know okay. it seems a little fan, too fancy, but it's delicious. And I highly recommend it. I'll put the, uh, I'll put the, um, how I make it in the show notes for everybody. Well, that's good. We got markets in turmoil on CNBC, and Rodrigo's talking about his fancy pink gin and tonic. Is, I know. Well, we got to keep it light if we can, no? I hear you. Pivoting Pivoting slightly back to to Vincent, (laughs) walk us through your framework. What are you looking at? Uh, I know that StoneX has has a big focus on commodities, but with regards to how your general framework for global macro uh, understanding works, can you just walk us through the main variables that you're watching and, and how you think about global macro? Sure. So, I mean, really, it's... Uh, for for my own business, I work mostly with LATAM pension funds uh, and, and private banks in Switzerland. So these are institutional investors who have the capacity to take some volatility and are, you know, five to 10 year investment horizon. So the idea is not to give them like, you know, the best trade to, you know, for the end of the month is to really get the big, big trend that will matter uh, for, you know, the next 10 years when, mm-hmm. when the, the, the workers are going to come out and they will need, you know, the money that's in the fund, right? Um, and, and I think it's started at least the way I think about market. That is, that is the I would say the biggest driver of of your uh, of your long term return is your asset allocation um, and, and getting these big calls right. And, and of course, you never get them perfectly right. right? You, you know, never buy at the bottom, sell at the top. But um, I do believe that there are these kind of long term secular trends that, as a long term investor, you can capitalize on and, and effectively beat the market. Um, so that's that's what I focus on. Um, I think, <clears throat> and I'm sure we'll talk about it more, but we are a pivotal moment. I, I know it sounds cliche to say that, but a lot of the mega trends that have been going on for 40 years are inverting. Uh, this is why markets feel so scary and, and so weird right now. Uh, but that, that means that, you know, for the next decade, you really have to start building portfolios differently than you had in the prior decades. Uh, when you backtest a strategy, you have to think, you know, what is it that I'm picking up? Am I picking up just, you know, the fact that interest rates have been going down for 40 years or am I, you know, really picking something different? Uh, so I, I think, you know, I I, I like um, I, initially I kind of started as a quant, so I, I still keep some of that background. But I, I think over the years I've developed quite a bit of skepticism, especially after working for Ned Davis Research, where, um, you know, we did a lot of technical analysis, which uh, I have a strong appreciation for, but there's also quite a bit of, you know, overfitting and, um, you know, computing power is cheap now. <laughs> um, so uh, having, understanding the parameters in your model, understanding the period over which you tested your model, testing out of sample, all these ideas I think are essential to, to building your uh, asset allocation. And then I, 
maybe it's my more uh, French bureaucrat or diplomat for that matter uh, background, but I, I like also to think about um, history, culture, uh, uh, social attitudes, because I, I do think there is a there is an element that you know almost like an animal spirit you cannot touch upon that matters, especially when you talk about inflation. Like inflation is a psychological phenomenon at the end of the day, uh, and you cannot boil down to equation. You have to understand, and I, I think something like COVID, for example, has, has changed the social psyche, the way people relate to their jobs, the way they relate to their leisure, the way they relate to their homes. So I I try to bring that all in, and yeah, try to be on the wrong on the on the right side of the trade. Uh, I feel now, I mean, as, as we're talking before, like we're finally getting some, some vindication, but, uh, it can be difficult sometimes. I mean, you can feel like you're preaching in the desert. You've come to the right place, Vincent. This is where quant analysis meets safe, big safe picture place. thinking. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Yeah. Um, you, you know, one of the, one of the features that obviously has dominated so much mind share over the last 30, 40 years has, has been. Um, the growth side of the asset allocation equation, right? If you sort of think about asset allocation as being motivated primarily by two dynamics, being inflation and growth and periodically uh, liquidity, investors haven't really needed to think about inflation or be concerned about inflation for most of the last 40 years. It's been sort of a steadily either sort of... um, benign disinflationary environment um, punctuated by deflation on a couple of occasions in sort of 2000, 2003 and 2008. But otherwise, it's been mostly benign kind of disinflation. We're clearly in a time when investors are now paying more attention to the inflation side of the equation. So what are you seeing and what, what, what were you seeing you know, 18 months to two years ago that were raising red flags for you on the inflation side? And then how have those dynamics that you were observing evolved to where we are today? Yeah, so let me start, because I had the inflation call before COVID. Um, COVID in, in some ways actually solidified this view. And as with many things, COVID just, you know, took an existing trend and then shrank it, right? I feel we we would still be, have this reflation. Uh, we would not be at 8.5. We'd probably be at, you know, four without COVID. But um, so let me start with the pre-COVID. I, I think um, it was really part um, a different appreciation of the relation between demography and, and inflation. I think the, the consensus is basically Japan. We will all go Japanese as societies age, uh, aggregate demand falls and nominal growth falls and yields can only go lower. Uh, inflation can, and that was kind of the consensus. And, and really, to me, it's a sample of one type of thing. Uh, you know, maybe you could throw some European countries in there, but I would argue there are other things that played a role in the European disinflation experiments, things like, like prudential policy, things like fiscal policy. So, um, uh, and, and I think the Japanese experience should not be extrapolated from. I, I think at some point, um, aging actually becomes inflationary uh, because it means you have, you know, your, your production function drops. You have, you know, fewer people producing and, and more people consuming. I mean, it's as if, you know, imagine if we told people where, you know, there's going to be UBI and 30% of the labor force is going to go out and, and live on a UBI. Everybody said that's inflationary. Well, that is what's going to happen with baby boomers. Uh <clears throat> So that there was that. Uh, there was also the, to me, the the, the main driver of of the great disinflation of the of the past twenty years 
was what happened in uh, in in um, in Asia post eighty nine. Uh, we started with the, the two Chinese devaluation, 93, 94. The yuan was devalued by cumulative um, 70%. Uh, just after the Tiananmen riots, collapse of the Soviet wall, the Chinese leadership realizes they had this massively expanding labor force uh, because there was a baby boom in the 70s in China just because of one-child policy. So they had to find 20 million new jobs. At the time, it was a very, very poor economy, uh, poorer than most of Africa. Uh, with a very derelict economic system. So the only way they could do that was by becoming the manufacturing um, uh, uh, engine of the world, which they did, the special economic zone, Shenzhen, the reforms, uh, all of that stuff, uh, and a very deeply undervalued currency. So suddenly you add, you know, close to 500 million workers in China overnight, and not not uncoincidentally, three years later, we hear the term great moderation in the U.S. for the first time. Now, the Fed being the Fed, they claim credit for everything. So uh, I think at the time it was Greenspan who said, oh, it's because our inflation policy is so credible that, you know, inflation has disappeared. No, it's not that hard. You only had to go to Walmart to understand what's going on. Um, and then it dominoed, right? With the East Asian financial crisis, you know, uh, first Thailand, then Indonesia, then South Korea, you see pretty much every single Asian currency drop by 70, 80%. And then these massive surpluses appearing across East Asia. Uh, so basically what that meant is that half of the world, I would argue the most productive half of the world, was subsidizing the consumption of the other half. And with the surpluses that they were getting, they were reinvesting in the US. That was the savings glut that Bernanke talked about. So you get low inflation, lower rates, negative correlation with stocks and bonds in a fantastic environment for asset allocators. All you had to do is 60-40. You made like 9% a year for basically 40 years. Um, that era to me has ended. Uh, if you look at, you know, you had a demographic collapse in, in East Asia, the likes of which we've never seen. Maybe when the, when the Columbus arrived in, in America, maybe it was the same. But uh, basically, you look at South Korea, Taiwan, you have one child uh, per woman. So Generations half, populations half every generation. So this huge surplus of labor is no longer there. These economies no longer need cheap currencies. They no longer need current account surpluses. Um, so just as that old shock was deflationary, that new shock is going to be inflationary. Uh, as Chinese, as the East Asian economy growth slows, so will exports, so will surpluses, and we'll be faced with the reality of of, uh, of labor shortage, supply chain issues, which I think would have happened irrespective with or without COVID. So that's that's interesting because it is, especially the demographic argument, right? There's two major arguments for deflation here. And one is technology. The other one is demographics, right? Um, so you, you kind of address the demographic argument, which is, you know, you're not going to have enough people out there producing the goods that we need. Uh, but the the uh, innovation or technology aspect might fill that gap or even improve it. Right. So how do you respond to that other major argument on the other side of this? Yeah, I think it's the best argument against inflation, honestly. And I I know it's it's fun to beat on Kathy Woods right now. uh, And I've done my share of that. But I I mean, I I think she should be taken seriously because that is. uh, Yeah, I mean, the only way out, if there is one to me, is some sort of technological miracle the one she would highlight, like, you know, whatever, what's the expected return now? <laughs> 50% a year. Now it just gets bigger and bigger. Every from day. When yeah. she lasts but like, you, yeah. you need to make a case like that where uh, you, we, we're going to have this squeeze on, on the, if you think of your production function as, as labor and capital with a 
um, I don't know, either residual or some sort of interaction term for, for technological progress, that needs to pick up the slack uh, if we want to to maintain um, price stability. Um, and I, I'm not a, a technology economist or productivity economist. I, I, it's a very complicated question. Um, it just seems odd to me that it would just pick up, um, you know, I mean, I can see the squeeze in, in, in the L in the function. Um, maybe, maybe not. To me, it seems that COVID, I, I know there were these hopes that, oh, COVID is going to unleash this great productivity boom. Um, hard to see why. I mean, if anything, you know, everything's more complicated. I mean, you know, try, try boarding on a plane these days or, uh, you know, I mean, Life in general is harder with COVID, so I, I see that actually as a negative for us. Moving shot. goods is just yes. as difficult as moving human beings these days, for sure. Well, you know, yes. the other thing, like the the big the big argument for technology being deflationary is automation, right? Right. And I mean, we see this all the time, right? Every everywhere you go nowadays, um, their companies are highly motivated to automate as many dimensions of of the business as possible, especially as cost of labor has has started to increase and availability of labor in many fields have, has started to be scarce. Um, but then it begs the question, what happens to these displaced workers, yes. either at the, at the nearing the end of their careers, who are unlikely going to be repackaged into software engineers or you know, um, healthcare support workers, right? Maybe you're going to repackage truckers into orderlies, right? It's not that, they, that, that there's no potential for some of this, but most of it is hard and complicated. Um, and at the low skill, um, just starting work stage, you know, the, the typical labor working at Starbucks or working um, at the grocery store or what have you, you know, when you go to the grocery store now, you check out your own groceries, um, when there's a huge kerfuffle in Canada right now, one of the, the main, one of the big health food takeout places has started, they deployed a, a cashier that's now on a screen and they video in from, uh, Guadalupe. And so they don't need to hire somebody like a high, high cost person in Toronto to stand at the cash. They can check out at the counter using, you know, lower cost labor in in Central America or Latin America and then just go get the salad that they wanted on the shelf. Right. Um, you know, so we're already sort of seeing this. And the question becomes, well, that's fine. Certainly we can automate away a wide variety of jobs. But then where are these people deriving their income from and where is the where is the demand coming from if, if nobody has jobs? So unless we sort of re-engineer society to support some of these displaced, some of this displaced labor, then there's a pretty substantial demand gap that is, is building in the economy. So that, that certainly is maybe deflationary in the short term, but, but it, it raises larger societal and political issues in the intermediate term. And aren't we forgetting um, the third leg of this, which is debt overhang? I mean, Demographics, technology, and excess debt. Excess oh. debt is the one we haven't yet touched on. So, Vincent, maybe you can touch upon that a little bit and also uh, uh, add in the, the fact that Ch uh, Japan has all these issues, but we haven't yet seen that pickup in inflation that you have suggested that 
aging populations will eventually uh, inflect towards. Yeah, yeah, no, good point. Um, on the debt, uh, I've been kind of in the MMT camp for a while that the debt problem is mostly uh, a matter of writing down assets more, more, and, uh, more than an actual threat. Um, I mean, r roughly speaking, I would say we had this big accumulation of private debts uh, between uh, 2000 to 2008, uh, real estate in the US, uh, some corporate debt in Europe, uh, etc., uh, emerging markets, dollar debt, whatever. Um, then um, uh, we got to a point where growth was not sufficient to support this, this debt accumulation in 2008. And... In various ways, we ended up nationalizing it, transferring it from private balance sheet to public sector balance sheet. Now, in Europe, that gave us a sovereign debt crisis uh, because we forgot the, the next part of the plumbing, which is you move it to the... In the US, we couldn't get a sovereign debt crisis because, you know, the, the US dollar is a reserve asset. Um, um, the next step, of course, once it's on the, on the, on the government balance sheet, is, is you extinguish it with, with QE. Uh, so until there's a gap in Europe between the time we, we nationalized the debt and we started monetizing it, and that's when we had a sovereign debt crisis. But if we had done it the two at the same time, we would have avoided it because, as and Japan, for example, never had any issue because the debt is effectively owned by the BOJ. I think they own mm -hmm. close to 100% of GDP. Now, when the, when the Take the example of Japan, when the BOJ owns a JGB, um, uh, it still pays the coupon. I mean, <laughs> very low, <laughs> low, right? So technically, that's money that flows from the the Japanese Treasury uh, to the Bank of Japan. But then, by, by statute, uh, the Bank of Japan has to turn over any profit it makes back to the U.S. Treasury, back to the Japanese Treasury. Or same thing between the Fed and the U.S. Treasury. So effectively, that debt exists on an accounting entry. Its money goes from the right pocket to the left pocket back to the right. But I think <clears> when <throat> we speak about that, we need to take away the part, the central bank balance sheets, because that that represent. It's almost like um, the townsel that you have in you know the bottom of the throat, like it's it's a legacy thing that that doesn't serve any purpose. So I, I view the world as much less indebted, uh, the true debt load as, as much less, and I think that that decade of of QE that was its purpose. Um, so if I were the, the way we'll deal with the debt, it's, it's it's a long cycle. Debt cycles are very long, right? We we, we build debt for forty years, uh, then we nationalized it, then we monetize it, and the next step is we inflate it, and then. We'll, we'll end up to a, a point, I think, by the end of the 2020s, when we'll have extremely low debt-to-GDP ratios, the same way it was after the 70s in the U.S., and then we can start the whole thing again. So so from what I'm understanding, I mean, U.S. right now seems to have a much lower uh, consumer debt than we did prior to 2008. Yes. Um, this idea from a government perspective of one man's uh, uh, debt is another man's asset doesn't really matter because it's the same government. So that part of the debt can be, if you, they wanted to have a debt jubilee. I'm sorry, they did it, yeah. And, uh, and so the combination of those two things, if that were to happen today, we, what we'd see is a much lower debt burden than what the headline tells us. Uh, I don't yeah, know but what you're missing... What's missing from that equation are there's two other major sources of debt. One is corporate debt and one mm -hmm. is asset backed debt. And so, you know, Vincent, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the corporate debt and the asset backed debt is managed through this cycle. <clears throat> well, I think, yeah, in, inflation is the only way to to deal with it. Uh, I mean, unless we, we, not, we do the, the other way around, which would be, you know, uh, we have a great recession and then everybody goes bankrupt and then we have to nationalize everyone, which which I don't think we should do. I mean, that's that's the European path and that's 
I think that's a very unpleasant path. Uh, you know, you, you end up with this low growth, extraordinary high asset prices, huge generational strife. I think inflation is a better way. And I think we're getting there. Like, um, yeah, people freak out now because the, what is it? The junk spreads are close to 4%. Well, inflation is at eight. I mean, you still, you know, you can still be a junk rated borrower and borrow at a negative real rate, which never happened in, in, in 100 years before. Uh, so I see inflation as that jubilee. You just inflate the top line so that you can service the debt. Um, so I think that applies to corporate. Uh, on the asset backed, I, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not as close to really give you, I, 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 I naively think there could be some problems, but I, I don't think I'm smart enough to, to really give you the, how, I, but that that's an area that that would worry me. Right. So yeah. when we talk well, about I mean, this idea of inflating away debt, we you also always talk about the difference in demographics, right? The younger generation who is very much indebted is going to be okay with inflation, right? They're they have this big student loan debt plus home debt, and they're they're just starting to make money. The labor costs are probably going to go up with inflation, hopefully. Or enough that they can kind of muddle through it, but it's the generation that has all the savings that are going to end up paying for that negative real, real um, yield. And that, correct. Who, who's got more? Who's got more political power? Is the question. Yes, there. correct. And then, then that issue. So let me let me go back a little bit on the on the generational analysis. Uh, to to me, like you know, one of the most important trusts you can make is the ratio of the S and P five hundred to the minimum wage in the U S. And 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 to me, that is a generational trade. Uh, so that that ratio has exploded. So I I think in the late seventies when when the baby boomers were you know making it into the real world, um, can you guys hear me? Yeah, perfectly. Okay, okay, yeah. Um, you could you could buy a share in the S and P five hundred with, with with two days of work. Uh, today you need to work for two months to get that same share. And, and the reason why I think of it as a generational trade is is think of it as as human capital versus financial capital. Um, if we want to take a, a very narrow and unspiritual perspective of life, uh, would say that the goal of life, at least according to the, the Samuelson textbook, uh, is to convert human capital into um, financial capital so that at the end of the day, when your human capital is depleted, you no longer work, you need someone to help you, you have the financial capital to hire this human capital to take care of you, uh, <laughs> right? So the, the if you think of the market, the young offer the human capital, the labor, which is really cheap and qualified. So that's where the minimum wage comes in. And then the old offer their um, their uh, financial capital in the form of pension or uh, houses or financial assets, and they buy each other. Well, that ratio between the two has been multiplied by 10. So the relative price of an hour of young people working, the money used by the old people has been divided by 10. To me, this is not a way, to, I mean, you're creating so much stress. I mean, that, that social generational contract is, is is the heart of the social contract. You know, how who gets what, which generation owns the asset, the debt. I mean, all of society revol revolves around these questions. And, and we're going one way for 40 years, and we need to go the other way. Now, the only way that I can think of to do that is for inflation. Uh, and, and with inflation, you effectively inflate the, the cost of, of, of labor, which we are seeing now. You see the highest gain for uh, waiters, uh, hospitality, uh, low-end jobs that are disproportionately made um, 
uh, employing young people. Uh, so you inflate you inflate the wage numerator, and then you deflate the denominator, which is the S and P five hundred, because rates go up, and then and, you know at some point you know the, the multiple play in. Instead of having the S and P at uh, what was it close to five times sales at one point, you know you get back to more normal multiple, and then that that restores the balance. Of course, it's extremely painful for the owners of of financial capital. So what you're saying so, is, despite <clears throat> the tough talk from central banks, this is exactly what they need. I mean, this is the argument that you hear from a lot of uh, commentators that might be described as somewhat more cynic. I think you're, you're, you're making this argument in a more elegant way, but it's basically debt jubilee is too painful because one man's liability is another man's asset. You're going to break the banks. You'll break the insurance companies. Can't grow your way out of the debt, at least not in the way that we are currently structured. So the frog in the, fi- in the uh, boiling pan is the easiest way and the least painful way in your view. I mean, inflation is a choice. Like, Today, Powell could stop inflation if he wanted. Like the, was it the Bank of Russia did that? You know, oh, I'm gonna hike overnight to the overnight repo rate to twenty um, percent. He 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 can stop. Like we can stop right away. Uh, you know, if we're really serious about it. Oh, okay. We uh, Powell announces that, and then uh, uh, Yellen announces that the U.S. government is gonna pursue a fiscal surplus and pay down the debt uh, for the next ten years. Inflation inflation goes tomorrow. So the inflation that we have is a, is a choice, uh, and I would argue that the the, the politics of the choice are, are not going to change. If anything, they're going to go more and more in a way that's favorable to debtors as the millennial plus Gen Z become the dominant uh, force uh, on the political. Um, I think the next election will be the first time that you'll have more uh, millennial and Gen Z than you had uh, silent plus boomers. Now, of course, the, the voting rates are not the same, right? Old people vote, that's, um, you know, and young people don't. But eventually that will, you know, the, the numbers will, will play out. I mean, death is, death awaits for us all. Uh, so, um, and then that will accelerate that shift towards pro-inflationary policies. We should even see that in, in social, in surveys of social uh, social studies, where you, you know, like the, the, the young today lean a more, much more left and it's not just the fact that young people are traditionally more left and old people are more right. Like even at the same age, boomers were more right than than the like this. I mean, especially I mean, Rodrigo, you, you, you're from Peru. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, Chile, same story. Uh, you have a you know all the, the, these ideas of, of MMT, and it's it's not just the, you know I don't think it's like Chavez. It's it's kind of something different. It's the, the generation that I think correctly thinks that it, it's been on the short end of the stick for forty years, and and wants to change, and is slowly slowly getting empowered. By the I way, totally Richard agree. Brazilian, so yeah. yeah. Just so you know, he's seen it worse than all of us. <laughs> I totally agree with your latter point, but I just wanted to push back a little bit on this idea that the, the Fed could now, uh, if they wanted. Uh, curtail inflation to a meaningful degree, at least in the time frame that is relevant uh, to investors. Uh, the idea that COVID accelerated uh, a lot of the trends that you were seeing earlier and the issues now with the availability of basic supplies, this uh, notion of deglobalization, the U.S. realizing that they can't rely on China for their uh, you know, pharmaceuticals and other critical uh, supplies. And so they're going to have to reshore those supplies back. That's going to be inflationary. Uh, the context now that we're seeing uh, the availability of grains and metals and energies because of the war in the Ukraine. So I wonder if you might comment on that. It, it, it seems like there's an, an important component. You, you might say there's core CPI that takes away food and, and energy prices. So 
that might be a little bit more reasonable. But I wonder if you might contrast that with with, with the view that the Fed does have uh, the ability to curtail. Yeah, no, I, I thank you for pointing that out. I, I was being somewhat provocative here. Uh, uh, I mean, the point is, it, it exists. Like, it, you can destroy so much demand that, that at one point you can. You, yeah, you, you engineer a global recession. Exactly. Like, yeah. That's right. The, By the like, way, yeah. Yeah, I mean that's you can you can raise rates to eight percent to match the point of inflation in Peru after the the great hyperinflation of '89, the U.S. government came in, put Fujimori in, ish, and then because we can't print our own, like we we just don't have the ability to interact with the world without kind of complying. There was a single day where the government decided to get rid of all their price controls. And they they announced it, and and the the, the central the uh, head of the central bank ended the discussion by saying, "And may God save us all." And the <laughs> next day, grains went from like you know whatever they were to ten x in a single day. Cost a massive, like very quick depression, riots everywhere. But then we were part of the global economy again. And Bob's your uncle, right? A lot of people call for that type of of shock. Um, you should read up on it. It was brutal, and the guy ended it ended it saying, "And may God save us all." Not not the right move. Well, you can get it by about. engineering it, or you can get it by just kicking the can until you have it. Just it emerges, whether you like it or not. So you can have it in a controlled way, quasi controlled way, or you can have it in an uncontrolled way. And I think the argument is that we should take the short term pain with a limited amount of control rather than allow it to get out of control. And then the dispersion of potential outcomes is much broader. <clears throat> I think the point I'm trying to make, uh, or that I was trying to make earlier is that a lot of this is outside of the control of governments and central banks. And a lot of the tectonic shifts uh, that are happening right now in the geopolitical stage, I think are bringing a lot of our assumptions uh, to, to be questioned. And uh, I think a lot of the things that we were holding for granted uh, can no longer be. Yeah, if I may rebond on, on your point, Rich. So uh, the so I think what you were telling is uh, even if, the, you know, m- most of these are supply side issues, the Fed's tool uh, in the words of Paul are blunt and they can only address demand. The point I was making almost provocatively was like, well, you can always destroy as much demand as, as is required, but practically that's not going to happen. Uh, and and I kind of agree with you on on you know actually I hundred percent agree with you on on all the all the factors you mentioned, um, and, and it brings me to to an idea that I that I I think we sh- we should consider, and I think was missing from from this week's press conference is there seem to be the the implicit belief during the press conference that it's just about excess demand like we, we you know we, we, we ran ahead uh in the us we gave too much money too much stimulus uh now demand is too hot but you know we're going to cool it down and then when we do that inflation is going to slow i i think especially coming from europe that w- one thing that we need to consider and i'm pretty sure it's going to happen here as well is that even if we slow demand we'll still have inflation um because of all the supply chain issues that you mentioned uh, commodity, uh, the global, all that stuff. Like, I mean, you, you see, the, Europe did not overstimulate like the U.S. did. I mean, if anything, we kind of kept people where they would have been, or even a little less. So now, if you're at the ECB, you have that's what the Bank of England, I think, ha- announced today. Like, yeah, we're gonna have a recession, and you know what? We're gonna hike. You know, boom, 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 boom. Uh, that's not a conversation that I hear people worry about in the U.S., and I think they should <laughs> because I. Maybe the Fed hikes and the QT and uh, the, the 
gridlock in Congress is going to get rid of the excess public stimulus. Uh, but I think we end up in a situation where growth has indeed slowed, but inflation hasn't slowed all that much. I think that's the story for, for 2023. No, no. I think so, the, the reality is if you actually want to moderate inflation to a material degree, you're going to need to engineer a deep global recession. Mm -hmm. And I agree that they don't have the stomach for it. And probably from a social, global social outcome standpoint, that's not even accounting for some of the outlier negative scenarios in an inflationary uh, spiral type of world. Engineering a deep global recession will impact the poorest of the poor in a much more outsized way and net-net is, and, and is going to be a much more negative outcome from a social standpoint than, than some of the other alternatives. You mentioned MMT, and, and I just want to maybe pull a little bit on how you think about MMT, maybe sort of def define it for us and maybe help us understand how some of the instruments of MMT might be useful in the current context. Right. So <laughs> we have, uh, how many hours do we have? <laughs> As as you need, baby. <laughs> You're right down the fairway for us. Well, I, I think at, at the core of MMT is kind of a distinction between you know currency issuers and currency users, and that we cannot use the same tools to analyze a, a currency user such as ourselves to a currency issuer such as the government and the, the naive rules of, of private accounting. Oh, you need to balance the book. If you if you run a deficit, sometimes you're going to have to pay. It does not apply uh, to the sovereign. And, and that um, seigniorage, uh, which is the, uh, the issuance of currency, is a legitimate form of financing government, always have been, always will be. Um, and I think from a historical perspective, it's, it's very hard to argue against it, or even from a functional, some people call it a functional monetary theory, uh, because this is how the world works. Like when the when the U.S. the government spends money, it does not go out first, uh, ask, oh, um, can you, you know, goes with like a little T bill in the middle of the street, and say, can you can you give me money for this T bill so that I can pay the the teachers? No, it just credits the the, the bank account of the person it pays, and it is that money comes comes from the TGA, which is the general account at the Fed. Uh, so, if anything, taxes come after spending. It's kind of a it reverses the the order, right? In the, um, and, and I, I mean, I, I don't think anyone can really seriously argue that they are wrong on how things. No, no. Work. There's a temptation. Right. This always right. happens with conversations about MMT, where everyone feels like you need to actually define MMT, the functional definition of MMT, and it is important because most most people actually don't don't have the background in that either, right? And it's and it's critical to understand that. MMT allows government to spend without the constraint of taxation. But, but the ultimate, then the real, the, the, the real constraint yes. of, of spending is inflation or, you know, supply, the ability for the economy to produce goods and services to meet the demand that's available from the amount of money that the economy has produced or wealth that the economy and demand that the economy has produced. So absolutely, we need to get that out of the way. But there are policy implications too that arise from the fact that the government is not constrained by taxation but is rather constrained by inflation that i think is a is a more interesting topic for discussion right and and is i think when people get angry about mmt that those are the things they get angry about and not about the functional plumbing of the of the financial 
Yeah, and especially now because we are hitting that limit, right? I mean, we we kind of had this golden window, right? Where because we had so much uh, disinflationary forces in the economy because of what happened to bank lending and yada, yada, like there was that space uh, for fiscal resources that could be mobilized without being inflationary. And I, I've argued that it, I mean, again, I come from Europe. Uh, I, I think, you know, Europe missed, you know, five years of free lunches there. Um, and, uh, but that, that that era is over. I mean, I would say we spent that free lunch on COVID on, on, you know, sending checks to people who didn't need it and and PPP loans that were abused by, you know, law firms and uh, and all sorts of graders. We had that space. And, and now we, we, we're hitting the real concern about um, public spending, which is indeed uh, inflation and, and, and the supply. Uh, and yes, now I, I, I would, I mean, to me, the, the whole ten, past 10 years have been a real life, a battle between these two competing monetary views and the MMT side has won. I mean, everything that MMT has predicted has happened. QE was not inflationary because we're doing, uh, you know, a fiscal um, uh, austerity at the same time. So it's it's fiscal that matters, not monetary. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Once you when you do not have an inflation constraint, you can increase deficits without creating any sort of issues. You do have a free lunch there, and then once you over eat that free lunch, you have an inflationary hangover. I mean, this is pure MMT. The past 10 years has been a crash course in MMT for the world. Yeah, I think it's indisputable that that quantity is the only culprit here, right? That it was a quantity of money that was, let's say, printed, right? Through through fiscal policy during COVID that has caused this inflation. And it's not so much the quantity as it is the directions in which, though, that money was spent, right? Right. There were, there were thoughtful ways that, that that money could have been spent in the economy. And there were, you know, the fire hose way that it was spent. And it was the fact that it wasn't spent thoughtfully that is, is partly responsible for the inflation, along with all the other supply challenges as well. So just to define that, you mean uh, not thoughtful is putting money to spend on Beanie Boos in Amazon. And thoughtful would have been infrastructure, you know, education, something that pays Absolutely. off over time, like investing in your future that pays dividends. Medicare for one all. doesn't pay dividends, the other one does not. At yeah. Revamping the education system, building a healthcare nursing reserve, infrastructure investment, technology investments. Absolutely. There's, there's just so many different areas that might have benefited from that spending. I think it's hard to dispute that MMT does a better job at explaining how the monetary system works than classical economics because it addresses head on some of the uh, main blind spots that classical economic uh, does, especially in understanding the, the, the flow of taxation and spending by the, the currency issuer, as you're rightly pointing out. I think, I think what makes a lot of people very worried is the uh, policies that a lot of MMT proponents would espouse. And I think we're coming into this head now with, a, a difficulty in seeing a future without fiscal spending and, and the degree to which MMT in the hands of populist governments might just bring the whole, uh, uh, unravel the whole system, if you will, with, with uh, bringing us from high inflation to potentially uh, even higher inflation, if you will. So there is an easy out to your, your point, which I'm not going to take, but it would be to say MMT is not, 
preoccupied with with policy prescription it just describes how things work uh then the idea is the policy is is implemented by democratically elected responsible leaders and you can you can do with it what you will uh so you can't blame what's happening on mmt just you know describes the way the world is doesn't tell you what to do with it uh but i mean i i understand that the broader meaning of your question and i i kind of agree with it uh um, that that's kind of part of my case for inflation. It's almost like a fourth turning argument, and I'm sure you you know the book by, by Neil Howe and, and Strauss, where where we have all these kind of generational, political, social shifts, different attitudes. Uh, again, I, I cannot think of any better country for that than Chile, or maybe to Peru to some extent, where it's you, happening you, for sure. Yeah, like you could you could really see, like you know, I mean, Chile, the, the most, uh, you know, it's the the church, the army, the state. I mean, it's, it's always been like that. And then suddenly you get this, this summer of discontent, you get this new constitution, 20 year old, like, you know, throwing, you know, everything but the kitchen sink at the, at the constitution. Uh, wow, what happened? Like, you know, I, I, I used to travel, I travel to Santiago quite often and you just three years, like, wow, completely different yeah. place. What happened here? Uh, and, and I think this is, this is what we're talking about. Now, as far as uh, um, what will happen, I, I, I don't know, but part of me, like in, in the case of Chile, for example, I think we could maybe go a little more like, you know, like, yeah, there's no reason why, uh, you know, uh, Chile should have the level of, of inco- income inequality that it has with, with the wealth that it has. Uh, there are probably, I think there is a, there's a middle path between where we've been and, and Hugo Chavez. Um, and I hope that we can find that path. Uh, but it is certainly at least in my opinion, where the world is going as we have this generational turning is going to bring more uh, uh, more preference for social, more preference for the state, more preference for collective solution, less less reliance on markets. Um, it's, I mean, you can see it even young generation today at its use of free speech. I mean, it's it's the water we all swim in. So, so let's talk about the generational shift and what, particularly about China because up until I started reading your stuff, I was in the in the um, bandwagon of China being the next great superpower, right? That it was going to finally take over. Internal consumption was going to replace exporting uh, consumption. And um, and what? Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you see the demographic shifts in China, and, and what your perspective of the future China is versus that narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think, I don't think the two are, are necessarily incompatible. I mean, I, th- I still think you can have a scenario. I mean, I, because I, I think Rodrigo and I, you know, we kind of grew up, I think, in the same um, early 2000s, rise of the bricks, uh, and especially in the US, you guys were kind of shielded by the, the illusion of, you know, the US is special, but uh, for foreigners, it was so clear to us that, uh, you know, we were moving to a multipolar world that, you know, the emerging middle class, all that stuff. And yeah, I think in the past 10 years, we've been, had to rethink a lot of these assumptions, right? I mean, the, the Brazilian middle class, you know, they really exist. Probably not. Uh, you know, the, the, the China's growth, double digit growth. Is it real? Is it not? Yada, yada. Um, but, uh, and yeah, so the demography in China is basically, uh, uh, starting 81, 82, you get the one child policy and it's, it was very hardly implemented in, in, in cities, a little less in the countryside, but you go from, you know, four or five kids, a woman to one, 
uh, I mean, this is something you cannot undo. <laughs> uh, and then even when they undid it in 2016, uh, the birth rates are still close to one. And even places that didn't have the one-child policy, like Taiwan and South Korea, they did on their own uh, because of things like uh, education, uh, cost of housing. I mean, that's not just uh, the government mandate. Um, so that's, yeah, that is going to be a, a huge uh, break on growth. Um, but again, I, I would argue there is some room to go. Uh, you know, they, they were growing at 7 8%. So even if, even if it slows to 3 or 4 that's still somewhat better than the U.S., uh, you can grow, as, as you were pointing out, the, 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 the share of the consumption pie, which is less than 50% of GDP. is ridiculous. In the U.S., you have, you know, 80% of, of your GDP is domestic consumption. In China, it's 50. So just by increasing that, that share of the pie, you can have growth. Actually, for, for most of the, the, the GDP growth that we see in China, it's, if it's if it surpluses, it means consumed by other people. <laughs> like, it's not real growth for them. Like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm great. We're growing at 10%. That means that, you know, the, the Americans are buying a lot of stuff at Walmart. That, that doesn't make you feel all that great, right? So I think I, I still kind of remain in the camp just because of the, the scale. I mean, you know, China is 1.1, 1.2 billion people. The U.S. is, is 380. I mean, <laughs> um I think you know they only all they have to do is become half as rich as the Americans, and it will be by far the largest economy in the world. So I, I still think it's going to happen. How how will they adapt to the demographic cliff, though? Uh, especially if you consider that much like Japan, China is somewhat of a closed society. You don't get a lot of influx. You don't have a lot of immigration uh, uh, coming in. Whereas in the U.S., you have a lot of immigration. Like it's it, it's what you hear. Everybody wants to come into. Uh, the U.S. Everybody wants to migrate to the U.S. You don't hear a lot of people wanting to migrate to China or or to Japan to to a large extent. So, do you see this demographic uh, replenishment perhaps serving as a counterbalance to 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 your view? Yeah, I I, I think that historically been been very correct. I mean, that's been really the uh, I would argue the the three advantages of of the U.S status as, as a superpower are um first this kind of amazing geography that it has you know especially when you compare to europe i mean you know they're not neighbored by russia turkey and africa i mean <laughs> they have canada and mexico that's that's pretty big <laughs> they have big rivers and i mean all of that stuff right and then they issue the world reserve currency and on top of that they get this this rent really of really smart educated people uh, who typically move when they're ready to work so you don't have to pay for their uh, expense right they, they move at 25 and then quite often they even retire in their own country so you, you really, you know, squeeze in. Um, it's like a tax on the rest of the world. And this is how empires work, by the way. I mean, empire, empires extract wealth from the periphery and they bring it to the center. Uh, and the U.S. has done that since uh, since its foundation, really. Uh, and it's done that better than, than any other country in the world. Um, now, I would say on the margin, I think the tolerance for immigration in the U.S. is going down, uh, or in the West in general, I mean, especially in Europe. So... Um, you know, the hope that we can outsource our demographic crisis to foreigners, I think, is, is um, not possible. Also, because you'd have to let in a lot more, you know, as, as mm -hmm. an internal demographic degrade, you, you'd need to get like, you know, two, three percent of annual migration. And I, I think we, we reach, especially in Europe, I think we reach a breaking point. Like we, I mean, it's, I don't think it's racist to say that. I mean, people just don't want any more foreigners to come in Europe, uh, even though the economy needs it. I mean, that was the whole debate around Merkel and getting the Syrian immigrants. I mean, Merkel was was giving the view of the 
the German establishment, like the German uh, manufacturing, is like, okay, we need X million workers to keep to keep the car production afloat. And then the, the population said, no, we, we stop here. Um, They're poorly there's a cultural loss that is made. Degree. Yeah. Right. Go ahead, and, uh, in Europe, the, the immigrants tend not to be quite assimilated. You see this uh, particularly in France and all the, the, the social convulsion that, convulsion that we've seen in France, whereas in the U.S., I think the Latino communities, which are a large influx of the immigrants, tend to blend uh, uh, much better into the uh, society. But I'm still thinking about how this contrasts with the two Asian superpowers, China and, and Japan, and, and, and the lack of this... Uh, immigration flow right. and how that will eventually lead China to grow old before it grows rich right. and Japan it, to continue to age and to, to, to continue to face yeah. difficulties. Uh, my, my impression of Japan is that, um, you know, they, they're kind of okay with this kind of manage, managed economy. I don't know how long it can last, but, you know, it, because your population is shrinking, even zero growth, you increase per capita uh, income. And actually, actually, if you look real cap, real per capita income, because of the foreign population, the fall of inflation, Japan's performance has been very comparable to that of, of Germany, of Canada, and the U.S. over the past 20 years. So when we say last decades, uh, no, like living standards, I mean, Japan is still a very comfortable place to live. It's a very safe place to live. They have low, I mean, you know, it's not a... Um, if you do a chart of nominal GDP, of course, it looks awful, especially with the, <laughs> the fall of the yen lately. But per capita, uh, yes, looks, per capita, yeah. real. I think it's not. Um, I don't know if I don't know if that's sustainable or not. I think we're kind of testing that now with this inflationary shock. We'll see what happens. Um, but so far, I think that's been the case. I, as far as China, and time will tell. Um, China has been an empire before. Uh, China is a very diverse, multi-ethnic country with, you know, already with what we call China, you know, uh, hundreds of ethnic groups. Um, I, I would not necessarily write it off as, a, a, you know, I mean, it, again, this is the path of empires. Empires attract from the periphery, squeeze in. And um, if China is to be a successful empire, it will have to do that. So speaking I of, I want to shift um, into. Go ahead. Okay, no, if you had a point on this one, I, go ahead because I wanted to kind of. No, shift no I was going to shift as well. Okay, because because what I've one of the things I've really admired about your um, analysis, Vince, is the empirical framework that you bring to bear, and you have done a lot of really good work on the nature of inflationary episodes historically and. Um, the circumstances under which they persist or in which they're transitory. Um, I think there's a general presumption in neo-Keynesianism and in the sort of broad economic literature that inflation is broadly self-correcting. And I think your analysis maybe contravenes that in a lot of it or in, in certain important ways. So what is your what what did you conclude from your analysis of prior historical episodes and what do you think that tells us about what we should expect in this current uh circumstance yeah so so one chart i've done which um uh, i found fascinating so i tried to download the, the biggest widest database of inflation i could across every nation as, as far as i could um and, and the question was I, I just wanted to plot the distribution of inflation uh versus say a normal economic variable like um like real GDP growth, where you have the kind of log normal distribution, right? Uh, and, and one thing that struck me is that inflation is not normally or even log normally distributed. Um, 
if you look at growth, you know, it's kind of you've got this nice peak at around, you know, three, four percent, you know, tails on both sides and nothing to see here. Uh, for inflation, it's got this very long tail. Uh, and then it, the, the, the curve is, is where we are today is an anomaly, seven, eight. You usually don't stay there. So two things can happen at seven, eight. Either it's the kind of um, uh, self-correcting high prices or the cure for high prices, inflation, like you have a shock, all prices go up, you know, things go up, out of whack. And then a little bit, you know, the market does its thing, you get more drilling and then falls back to price stability. Or it's an outcome that I think is absolutely not priced in by by, by uh, the swap market or the um, tips market is it actually keeps accelerating because you get to the point where um, uh, inflation becomes inflationary, right? The expectation channel. And I think the longer we stay at seven, eight, the more likely that that scenario happens because people start adjusting their behavior, right? I mean, if, um, I don't know. I uh, give you a personal story. I'm, uh, um, Arnie, would you I, push in the screen? Pardon me? Sorry. I was just telling Ani to push the screen because I have you. She's around. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So that's okay. Perfect. That's the short. Yeah. So like, I, I, for example, now I need to change my car. I got a car wreck. I'm like, I, I had been waiting, you know, looking at the 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 the, the, the used car CPI. Uh, no way. That thing's up like 35. I'm not buying now. And I'm like, actually, it's not slowing down. So now that so for, for the past six months, my my reaction, my own reaction, function to inflation was like. I'm going to wait until it passes. And now it's been six months and I, I look at the Mannheim, whatever, like I don't see any sign of it. So I'm like, oh, I need to buy now fast. And then that, that's a psychological shift that I think could happen at the societal level where like people are like, no, I, I want to pay, you know, you want to be paid faster. Uh, you invoice it. So the velocity of money starts picking up and, and that's when you go in that right tail. Now, I'm not saying we, we're going to go there in the US, but I would say the probability of getting there is certainly not zero and, that probably is priced by exactly zero by, by the swap market at this point. And you did some studies on I the think conditional probability easy. of inflation falling back to more normal levels once it, once it sustains above a certain threshold for one or two quarters, right? You want to walk us through what you found? Yeah. So, you know, I, I started from the Fed's uh, SCP, Summary of Economic Projections, so, uh, uh, or fairy tale in uh, normal words, uh, where uh, they tell us <laughs> that, uh, so what, how does it work? So the, the, the Fed funds rate is going to rise to the neutral rate, which now we know is 2.5%, something around that. Uh, and then inflation is going to slow from eight to three at the end of this year. And then gently converge to two, all of that while unemployment rate stays at 3.5%. I mean, I, I, I see no problem with that scenario. Uh, so that, that's what the Fed is telling us. And by and large, this is what the market is pricing in, right? I mean, if you look at the swap market, it's, you know, the Fed is somewhat correct that um, this is, um, you know, it's credible in the way that the, the swap and the break-even market reflect that. So I'm like, okay, how likely is it? So I was looking at uh, countries where you had a historic price stability, a one-time spike, one-year inflation rises about 7%, and then I, I looked at the next five years. So the tiny bar, which I define as full success, is the Fed path, i.e. inflation falls back to 3% and stays under 3% for the next five years. That happened 1.4% of the time. <laughs> uh, this is what we all 
you know, putting, I, I think some people would go with the, the, the next bar as well, right? Partial success is we're under 3% on average, but we have a couple, uh, you know, um, uh, we have a couple spikes of about 3%, but we don't go about 7 I, I would say that's where the market is, to be fair. Like, you know, like they, most people don't think inflation is going to fall to below 3, it's like, like 3.5, whatever, a couple of years. And then, you know, that's, self, that's, uh, that's about, I don't know, it looks like it's about 8% of the time. So between the two, you have 10% of the case. And then the, the two scenarios that the market is absolutely not pricing are uh, 20, 20 to 5% each, basically. One is inflation stays between 5 and 10% for the next five years, which would be where I am. Uh, and then there's the other one, the craziest one, where no, actually inflation accelerates and averages more than 10% in the next five years. And that happened 25% of the time historically. And that's something that's, you know, it's not nowhere. It's not in the tail. It's not in the price. It's nowhere. So the how are those scenarios? Is- okay, Richard, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to ask how do those scenarios vary between countries that have historically had stronger currencies, uh, which can perhaps attract more capital and can withstand a little bit more these oscillations versus Latin American, African, Asian countries that have historically uh, dealt with balance of payment problems and other uh, economic dynamics that eventually do lead to uh, inflation getting out of hand. Yeah, that, that is that tale. I mean, that tale is, you know, uh, Brazil in the 80s, uh, Argentina in pretty much every single decade since Zimbabwe, <laughs> since Weimar, yes. Germany, so on. Yeah, that, that, that is that tale. But I mean, and I, I don't really expect that. But to be devil's advocate, I mean, talk about balance of payment crisis. I mean, look at the latest trade balance for the U.S. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I mean, again, the, the fact that the U.S. issues the world reserve currencies is indeed a game changer. But I, I would not completely rule it out. Uh, uh, oh, it's possible, big, given the weaponization of the dollar since we what's happened with uh, uh, the sanctions imposed on Russia, putting no moral uh, or, or ethical considerations on, on what was done there. If you're a fiduciary for a central bank or a government treasury right now, you must be considering the risks that you're on the wrong side of any argument with the U.S. in the future and that your reserves are rendered useless. And I'm, I'm sure all of these guys are having to consider diversifying away part of their cleaner's dirty shirt that the well, U.S. is always That's the question. Of. You know, where do they diversify? Aside from real assets like gold and commodities, for example, where do these global treasuries diversify their reserves? Yeah, you can't really count on the euro because by, by many accounts, the euro will not last uh, more than five or 10 years, e- even though I think the recent uh, uh, rallying together uh, by the European Union and NATO to some extent does seem like no, no, it's Junk, given Junkers them- Eurobank, J- Junkers Bundesbank is was eviscerated as soon as they the Germans said that they're going to deficit spend on military spending. So, you know, and there's obviously lots of reconciliatory um, language and communications across Europe now where even Germany is getting behind the fiscal stimulus bus here and they're loosening their inflation constraints. Right. So I don't think any, and certainly looking at the Euro USD, the market certainly doesn't see the Euro as being a more stable place to store reserves. So 
the yen is the yen is failing. The uh, renminbi is collapsing. In and value. Uh, it's it's also a closed economy that doesn't have enough depth of its uh, sovereign bond market well, sure. to, to to weather all those. Uh, uh, you got you got yeah. You still have the, liquidity, the global liquidity. The uh, market we have a that the U.S. has some yield to their treasuries right now. Right, another fifty basis point hike. Like all these things, it's just going to be a tough thing to replace, at least in the short term. Um, but it's uh, a strange phenomenon where where I think it's right to be concerned about the value of the U.S. dollar, but relative to all of the other currencies, it still looks relatively strong. Which brings up the question of why aren't we seeing more action in gold here? Is that something that you're you've got any? Anything to add to? And I other precious to metals. Silver has collapsed as platinum. Yeah. As- has there been any single thing that's more disappointing than silver? I I, I vomit silver. <laughs> I mean, it, I, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, I'm disappointed by. I mean, I, what I have to add is my pain. Um, on gold, <laughs> at least, I would say it's kind of something like a day like today, like whatever, like it's. You know, it's still holding up better. It's up for the year. It had the big, I would argue that gold had its big move in, 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 you know, before the inflation came in. So, you know, it went up 30%. Then once the inflation did come in, you know, it started worrying about. That's still how I, I still, ra- gold, I can still rationalize my myself in it. And I still think it's right. Uh, man, silver, I don't know. I mean, you know, you have like double digit nominal GDP growth, you know, lack of investment everywhere. Uh, I mean, and the thing is just, uh, I don't know. Silver just 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 likes to break horse. All the other industrial <laughs> metals are are taking up. I mean, it's a mix between industrial and precious, and it it yeah. Well, copper. I, I mean, what do you still look back back that? What what does? Copper, copper, right? Copper, copper continues to look. Yeah, copper's like weak. Palladium, platinum, we're short. A vomiting camel. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so but the, Vince. I mean, when I see, there's one chart that I keep on looking at that, that just validates this, that gold is correlated to real returns, right? To the real rates. And, uh, and when rates were going on the way to negative, gold was, was going up. And then as rates have gone positive again or, or getting above zero again, uh, gold has not done as well. I mean, it acted positively during some crisis moments. No, but, but real rates I mean, are even to me worse like that. today, are even more negative today than they were, you know, it, during QE, right? Like there's real rates are still massively during, negative. Like the, the 10 years at two. They are. And the, but it's it's the what, direction. Where are we now? It's, two and, a half, and CPI it's is at eight. Closer to three, Sorry. but still your, your points, I, I think your yeah. point is valid. Yeah. It's true, but I'm just saying, like, we're talking about what, what's happened to gold in the last quarter, last six months, last two years. If you match that against the change of positive to negative real rates, it'll, it, it's negatively correlated to that direction. You're breaking up a lot, uh, Rod. I don't know if it's me, but it... No, yeah, his, his, his internet no, uh, is uh, lacking. All right, I'm going to ask one more question, and then I'm going to uh, stop talking because I clearly suck with my internet. Uh, Vince... Can we talk versus <laughs> 1970s non-yield curve control? Yeah, so you have to do it again. I, I know where he's going. I'll I'll say it for you. So, um, as we look at the current inflationary environment, obviously we've had two 
major inflationary episodes in the last, well, in the, in the post-World War II period, right? Their first was coming out of the war, which was financial repression and the Fed and central banks keeping rates low and allowing inflation to run hot in order to devalue the, uh, the debts that were accumulated during wartime, right? Mm -hmm. And then obviously the 1970s, the Fed allowed rates to fluctuate. And so while we did have negative real rates on occasion, we also had very positive real rates. And so, you know, we had both high rates and high inflation and central banks were actively trying to moderate it. As you look at those two historical analogs, what are the similarities and differences that you could draw to the current episode? Um. Well, it's a good question. Um, so on the post-World War II inflation uh, and financial repression, I, um, I think we're going to try that path, right? That is, that is the hope. I mean, this is the beautiful deleveraging, right? You, you, you know, you, you don't worry about it for, and, you know, the economy kind of fixes itself and, uh, you know, you, you kept a 10-year yield at whatever, 2.5 back then, I can't remember. Um, and after a decade, you're, you know, you, you, you've come clear of your uh, World War II, Korean War deaths. Uh, so I think we're going to try that because that's the better one. Um, I don't think it's going to work. And the reason I don't think it's going to work is I think what happened in the 50s is that going back to our early conversation on productivity is this productivity just kicked in and, and, and took over. I mean, after World War II, we basically had, you know, 50% of labor force we're not using, which was a woman just, I mean, it started during World War II, right? Susie the Riveter and all that. You could massively expand your production function. Also uh, African-American communities uh, with the desegregation, uh, migration to the, to the North. Um, so you, you, between, you know, 10, 15% of, of, of disenfranchised communities and, and the woman, you could expand your production. Plus, the U U.S. dollar becomes a world reserve currency. Uh, you 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 switch from you know clearly being the global imperial power. Um, so all of that was was deflationary. Um, so I think that's what took care of, of the inflationary pressure, and that that's what allowed the experiment to be successful. Um, I don't see how we repeat that. I mean, we're going to try to repeat it because that's that's the best. You know, that's the easiest. Uh, but I don't see how we're going to be successful. I, I don't see where you find you know. 40% of the labor force just like sitting around, just like ready to come in. Um, so um, I think it's going to start looking like the, like the fifties and then it's going to devolve uh, into the seventies. Uh, and then we'll have these, these issues because I mean, the seventies, as you point out, uh, you know, we, we make fun of uh, Burns, right? The, the Fed chairman at the time of like, Oh, he was too slow. Well, Look at the Fed funds rate versus CPI. I mean, just like match, 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 match. I mean, yeah, yeah, they tracked we, it brilliantly. Yeah, 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 real rates were actually positive for most of the seventies, and you know, yeah. yeah, it was. Um, I mean, think about that. I mean, think of where you know terminal rate Powell told us it was two to three percent. I mean, think about bringing it to the level of inflation eight point five. Um, so to me, that means more more pain for financial markets and and more returns for uh, things like commodities, things like momentum, things like CTAs, things like uh, uh, gold eventually. I'm, I'm not going to say silver because um, I'm too sad about it. Uh, but um, yeah, I think this is, this is really just the beginning. So, so 1950s financial repression leading to a and when, when, when we see that, yeah, When we see that it doesn't work, like a brutal awakening and and you know the, the the more you wait, the harder the you know the the harder the awakening, right? So, 
So uh, what would the indicators be that would signal to you that this financial repression approach is m- maybe being more successful than you expect? And what would you be looking at to see the, the opposite things sort of spiraling in a different direction? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I mean, you need to see productivity pick up uh, dramatically, uh, which is always hard to measure, right? I mean, productivity is kind of one of these things, like it's like the Holy Ghost during mass. I mean, you know, it's there, but no one sees it. It's the residual uh, term after yes. you account for all of the other things that you can count. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I would uh, even argue, can you really count GDP in an economy that's yeah, right. 80% service oriented? I mean, I, I like when Netflix raises its price, is it inflation or is it, you know, because the catalog is big? I mean, I, I have all these kind of essential questions that, but anyway, I'm not going with that. So yeah, miracle increase in productivity and then also uh, increase in, in, in labor force participation. Somehow we, we you get this reserve army of worker that, that comes in. I just don't see where it's coming from. If anything, you know, we job report today participation went down uh it has been going down for for right better part of i guess two decades what do you attribute that to no the the craziest chart yes is is prime age men like if you look at prime age men in the u.s four decades you know you go from um, 98 percent so prime age is like 25 to 55 you know to to i don't know it's less than europe yeah it's less than europe now for prime age men and to me, that you, then you go back to the whole issues of uh, opioids, of broken healthcare system, of disenfranchisement, um, disenfranchising yeah, the country, the, the territory itself. You know, treating eighty percent of the country as, as disposable and telling them, yeah, just learn to code and shut up. Uh, I mean, this is you know four years of, of bad policies that that come, and, and and again, you add COVID on top of that. I mean, you have the obesity problem that's gotten worse, the mental health crisis has gotten worse. Uh, um, the drug problem that's gotten worse, I really don't see. Like, there's, to me, there's a physical deterioration in, in the in the workforce in the U.S. that that kind of puts a cap, honestly, on it on its growth potential. Like, that's the biggest weakness that that I can think of the U.S. is the fact that it has a, an extraordinarily unhealthy population. Would you say that that also adds uh, power to your view that, in relative terms, China can still sort of surpass the U.S. in economic terms because you're seeing sort of this social malaise that keeps the U.S. economy from from reaching anywhere near its full potential? I I, I would think so. And not just sort of, like I said, physical. I mean, you know, if you look at uh, uh, 40% of the U.S. population is obese. I mean, if you look at the... the 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 job um, the portion of the job markets where you have the tightest are you know things that you need to be fit to do like uh, waiters, uh, hospitality, uh, leisure, uh, or even the tr- the trucker crisis is another example. Like the, the the reason we can't hire truckers in the U.S. is because there's this, this uh, test against marijuana. Uh, and, and yeah, most, um, you know, um, it's very hard to find people who are, you know, clear of any drug for the past two weeks and are willing to be, you know, be on the road for, uh, for several weeks at a time without seeing their, their families. So, um, no, I, I think it's a major issue and yeah, the U S is, uh, uh, again, it's the product of, of, I mean, we're getting a political turn, but like, I think we had an opportunity with COVID, uh, maybe, or even after the great financial crisis to, to kind of fix and, and redirect the system and, and we didn't seize it. I want to be cognizant that we don't have you for uh, eternal amount of time here and, and, and time being limited. We would be remiss if we didn't ask you a little bit about 
how you're seeing uh, the best opportunities to position portfolios. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about the big macro themes. I've heard you in the past discussing hard assets, soft assets. What are the assets that you are currently seeing as the best opportunities? You, you, you've mentioned CTAs as well. Uh, the, those do seem to be uh, becoming part of the conversation again, but there doesn't seem to be as much uptake as perhaps one would imagine, given the current circumstances. So I wonder if you might talk a little bit about asset location in this environment. Yeah. No, He's silver. He's levering silver right now. Because it's, it was, if it was good before, it's good now. Right. He's done with he pain train. He's done without pain train. Right. Uh, no, but uh, j- jokes aside, I, I think you know an approach like the one that you guys have is, is you know, it's only the beginning. Uh, you know, like this you, you know the sixty forty is dead. I mean, we see days like you know, like stock market down three percent, and then ten year treasury down three and a half percent. I mean, you look at the sixty forty for the year. I mean, it's it's down you know ten because both bonds and stocks are down ten. Uh, so clearly, you need to rethink your entire asset allocation, and clearly, you need to broaden it to uh, strategies that involve real assets, that involve commodities, and that involve. Uh, I think quant investing properly done, not just, you know, over-optimizing back tests over the past 20 years uh, is going to be, uh, you know, for the mid 70s, you know, CTAs perform very well among others. So, um, I, nah, you know, I don't want to preach to the choir, but I think you guys have done tremendous work here. Um, and again, it, it is just the beginning. Uh, as far as the short term, um, it's odd for a, an inflation guy like me, but uh, uh, cash, uh, you know, when, when everything goes, you know, the, the, you know, the, the cash purchasing power in terms of assets is going up <laughs> in terms of stuff you can buy. The grocery store is going down. But uh, uh, I, I was a big uh, Latam bull. Um, you know, I uh, a call that worked really well in Brazilian Real and Brazilian Equities in general. Now, we had a big move already, uh, you know, about 25, 27%. Peru was one of, the, one of your calls too, no? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And they're up for the and year then, still. I mean, they were yesterday. Yeah, one of the few, <laughs> very, very few. Uh, I, I, now I'm almost starting to worry that, you know, if, if this accelerates, the dollar keeps strengthening, you get bad balance of payments issue. Like, I, I, I started to worry that we might get to this, like, tail, tail end scenario of things getting really nasty this summer. Uh, and, and then even, like, you know, the, the kind of, like, LATAM, commodity-heavy, resource-heavy is, is going to start suffering. I mean, I still would own that over, you know, um, Microsoft at 10 times sales. Uh, but um, it could be that it gets so bumpy that it's going to be very, very difficult. Um, I want to uh, parse that cash call a little bit because I think, and I, I could be wrong, but my sense is that you're, because your client base, um, you're often talking to clients in, in Latin America um, and I haven't looked at Latin American interest rates, so I'm not sure, but maybe, maybe in Latin America, they're allowing rates to rise commensurate with, with rates of inflation, right? And so cash in that scenario probably makes some prudent sense. But I mean, clearly, if the, if the developed market central banks are explicitly pursuing a policy of financial repression, where they're going to hold cash rates at 2% and allow inflation to run at 5 to 10%, Cash is one of the worst places that you can you could park funds, like tactically. We agree. Yeah, I mean, presumably. yeah, agree on both. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, Latin America. That's one of the rare cases where Latin American central banks have been smart. I mean, you look at the city; it's you know close to ten percent uh, across. I mean, before before Powell, 
you know, even thought about thinking about inflation or whatever the quote was, you know, you had like four or five rate hikes across, you know, Colombia, Peru, uh, Chile, Brazil, Mexico. So they, they they come into this crisis in a good spot. You know, current account balances are generally better. Um, so yeah, I that that was part of the appeal. The currencies are very cheap. Uh, the 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 commodities that they export have rallied massively. So you have all these tailwinds. I mean, to me, that was more sorry for six months ago. Like we 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 are you know we are going through these tailwinds. Um, but yeah, uh, and then on on your point, yeah, cash is clearly a short term solution. Really, that reflects the lack of other options. I I start to worry that my, my cons. I mean, talking about short term market outlooks, my, the biggest concern I have right now is that kink in the euro dollar curve. You know, the, the expectation that we're going to have a dovish pivot in uh, from the Fed in uh, uh, in twenty twenty three. To me, mm-hmm. it tells me that transitory is alive. Like it's it's like Voldemort. You can't say it, but it's still there. From an like expectation market, standpoint, that's you, where the market yes, is still pricing. Agreed. Yes, yeah. and you you're gonna you're gonna need if I'm right, you're gonna need to kick that out. And once you kick that out, once you you incorporate these higher for longer rates in your discount models. I mean, you know, especially given the duration of the U.S. stock market, we have another leg down. My, my guess is that's going to happen in, in late August, September, October, typically when seasonality is bad, when you're going to have like margin compression from earnings, you have this perfect storm that's building. And again, if we follow on the 2008 analog, like we are the first 10% down. That's not what the real pain is. Yeah, you know, yeah. The real pain and when it drops right. really fast. Yes, it's easy, you know, after no, it, 20. That's it. That is, you're right. There was a, Okay, there was so a that is what I was trying to get at. Totally, yes. So that that kink in the euro dollar curve, which is indicating that the market is still pricing transitory inflation, when that kink goes away, that is suggestive that the market is now taking sustained inflation seriously. At that point, they will be pricing risk assets for much higher long-term rates for longer. And so that is a point at which from a tactical standpoint, investors may start to be able to become at least tactically constructive on risk assets because yes. they will have been properly priced yes. along the, the discount curve. Yeah, that, that, makes, that makes a lot of sense to me. So, so for you, looking at that kink, which is kind of at the, if I'm right, the, the 18 to two year um, range of the euro dollar curve, right? So yes, watching yes. that sort of range and, and seeing if that kink reverts to a more upward sloping continuous function that would be a constructive um signal to start thinking about putting risk back on yeah and after after financial assets drop by 15 yeah. or 20 percent more exactly. as repricing happens yeah exactly. i mean it when, when you get there that's the signal but right now it's not priced in right because it's all about what's no, not no, being no. priced in right now that is not the way markets go down fully priced in, you might start seeing a more constructive economy. Now, what about the, so, so the other path, to me, that's the most bullish, most constructive. That's the best case scenario. I think you agree, right, Vince, right? The worst case scenario is that the Fed pivots dovish too quickly. The euro dollar curve um, inverts and, or, you know, goes back to normal and and the slope goes goes way higher and the market then begins to price in much higher levels of inflation for longer. The Fed pivots, risk assets get a tactical bid. Maybe we get a we get a multi-week rally while inflation expectations also surge. 
And then the Fed needs to go into an even more aggressive pivot three to four months down the road to fight inflation rates that are that are twice as high and much further out the curve than are currently being priced. Is that a fair kind of worst case path to possibility? I, I'd say maybe, I mean, I maybe we've got a preview of that the past two days, right? I mean, the Fed, you know, takes 25, you Agreed. know, 25 uh, bips off the table, market rallies 3%, then people wake up and like, hold on, <laughs> what's going on? The yield curve steepens. I mean, that's that could have been a preview. Of that. I, I hope you're wrong. I, I hope that doesn't happen because you know, yesterday was pretty bad. So like what you're talking would be months like yesterday. Yeah. Is this yeah. kink in the Euro dollar curve what explains the this apparent uh, contradiction between the dollar index, which is now almost at 104 and U.S. treasuries and U.S. equities falling? So money is flowing into U.S. dollar assets. But the, the the classic U.S. based assets cannot catch a bid or haven't been catching a bid in the last few weeks. Is this where they're going to this uh, year and a half to two year portion of the euro dollar curve? Yeah, I, I would. That would be consistent with people wanting, you know, buying a dollar asset but keeping duration as short as possible. That would yeah, that would be the consistent explanation with uh, with what you see. Uh, and I I can understand why people would do that. How bad do you think the, this this you uh, the the dollar index uh, can get before uh, we see some uh, softening again? Because uh, it seems like the the we were getting lower highs. Uh, it, it required a, a, a lower and lower high uh, to to become a, a pain threshold for investors, but all of a sudden we are now seeing it uh, it rally all the way back to one hundred four. So. So you're triggering my old demons, like something I, I hope I wouldn't fall into, which is talking a bullish case for the euro, <laughs> which I I know never works. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean, if you it, you triggered me, uh, I'm thinking that at some point the incentive for the Europeans and the Japanese are going to change. Once you have thirty percent PPI producer price import inflation, you are and you are, and, and, and your currency is falling by like 10% a week, you are destroying your manufacturing base. Like, the, the, you know, like if we keep going that path, the, 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 the German car manufacturers can't get their hands on the part. The, uh, like, and these are, these are economies that live from exports. So at some point you'll see that shift and like, okay, we cannot go down that way anymore. We got to be serious about it. And my impression, especially, I, I like the Swiss franc. I think, you know, Switzerland, because of all the reserves, like they can set the value of currency where they want it to be. Uh, they have like, you know, a trillion plus in, in reserve, 100,000 100, euros of, of reserve per capita. So they can just, you know, okay. One mo- the moment they decide to be serious about inflation, they can they can do something. Or in Japan, they can just let go of the yield of control and, and fix the problem overnight. So I hope that happens at some point uh, because yeah, cost inflation is going to be too painful and you have very powerful um, manufacturing lobbies in both Europe and Japan. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I always overestimate the, the, the economic competency of, of European uh, policymakers. Uh, for me, that, that point is now like, this is when you need to like, okay, adopt a strong Euro policy, but Lagarde, um, you know, she was a, um, how do you call that? The, the the coordinated swimmers, you know, the one who do the uh, artistic synchronized, synchronized. Yeah, he was in the he was in a French national team. She's very good at it. Um, 
I don't think that is the right scale for the job. Like, so I think the way she approaches monetary policy, the same that she does with synchronized swimming. Uh, so eventually, once enough other central banks have done it, she's going like, to do the right thing, but it might take some time. Wow. Okay. That's a good Vince, training. amazing. Oh. We've been at it for an hour and a half now. Uh, did not disappoint. Uh, thank you so much for your time, man. That was that was amazing. Great master class in uh, all things macro and inflation. Um, let's uh, where can people you find tell you? us? Yeah, where people can find you? Uh, well, Twitter is a place where people find people. Uh, so at Vincent V I N C E N T Deliard D E L U A R D. If you go to my pin tweet, there is a link where you can. Uh, apply uh, for a free trial of my research, which is granted to everybody. Um, so I write a report a week. Uh, it's available for clients of, of StoneX. Uh, just get in touch with your brokers uh, and we'll figure out a way to get you on my list. If not, um, you know, you can subscribe uh, as, um, you know, uh, like the way you would subscribe to economists. Uh, maybe DM me. That's probably the best way to go at it, honestly, or follow the link. Uh, and... Um, yeah, that's it. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to be with you. I was looking yeah. forward to this as well. Uh, I think you do terrific, terrific, terrific work, and uh, things are going to get much, much easier and, and better for you in the next decade. So, thank you so much. For somebody, everybody, knock on some wood. Great, your lips, great the universe's ears, my man. Um, I also want to I want to mention that um, we've got Andy uh, Constant on the show next week. So actually, I think it'll be a really nice segue from Vincent's work to Andy's work. We're going to talk about um, how the interaction between the Treasury issuance and the Fed um, quantitative tightening and the roll off their, of their balance sheet interacts for supply dynamics in terms of liquidity and, and demand for asset prices in the intermediate term, and obviously get his take on how to navigate what is obviously a really tricky macro environment with um with tactical trading so stay tuned for that vince it's been a pleasure gentlemen thanks again and have a great weekend thank you for listening to the gestalt university podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts we also encourage you to engage with us on twitter by searching the handle at investresolve If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.